and welcome to Pound the Rock, an NBA podcast by the score. I'm your host, William Liu. I'm joined, as always, by Joe Scacharo. What's going on? And Joe Wolfond. What up? We're here to memorialize the first round um, that has already passed us by. I mean, the second round has already um, kicked off with, you know, Golden State and Houston already leading um, the Eastern Conference. Um, you know, it's, it's still there to come. But uh, let's actually start in the East because the game of the weekend was definitely uh, game seven between LeBron and the Indiana Pacers. And I really said it like that because it was really just LeBron versus the Indiana Pacers. And uh, in the end, it was LeBron, despite cramping, despite almost playing the entire game, coming out on top. But, um, you know, it was by no means an easy series. Uh, the Cavaliers actually got outscored in their seven-game win over the Pacers. And uh, I'll start with you, Cash. Do you, do you get the sense that LeBron is in trouble? Oh, definitely. I don't think there's any question. I think um, I think so much of their season was just people, um, you know, early in the season it was about flipping the switch. And as a team, they were still good, and they just had to flip the switch. And then I think once people realized that well, maybe the team's actually not that good, then they made the deadline deals. And then it was like, oh, now they fixed things. You know, they had those three good games. And, and then you realize, no, it's still more of the same. They're still trash defensively. LeBron still has to carry way too big of a load. And then the narrative just became – well, LeBron's capable of doing it by himself. So even though maybe the team can't flip the switch anymore, LeBron can still just be LeBron and cruise through the East. And I think I think what the first round reminded us and taught us, if you didn't already know, was that the Cavs are every bit the four seed that they earned during the regular season. This isn't some you know team that's as talented as a 60-win team that just coasted through the regular season. No, this is a team that barely got to 50 wins. They're a solid four seed that barely scraped by the five seed in a competitive four or five series, despite LeBron going for 47 and seven every game seemingly. So I think when you, when you take the whole season into account, including the first round of the playoffs, I think he's definitely in trouble. I don't think the Cavs are the best team in the East anymore. And I think it's at, they're bad enough now where even LeBron, you know, having an all time series, no matter how good he is, I just don't think that supporting cast around him is good enough anymore to beat Toronto or Philadelphia. If they somehow do get by Toronto. Yeah, I have a couple points on that front. One of them is I don't expect the rest of that roster to play as badly as it did in that first round. And I think, you know, the fact that the Pacers took them to seven is a testament to, like, how well and how hard the Pacers played, but also the fact that, like, LeBron's teammates really let him down. And I still think that's going to be a problem because I do think that the roster around him is weak. I just don't think they're actually as weak as the way that they played in that series, like particularly Kevin Love, who is just a total no-show. I, I know he's a little bit banged up, but I would kind of expect a, a slight return to form from him going forward. And, I mean, if they can just get anything at all from guys like Rodney Hood and J.R. Smith, like, that totally changes the equation. But I do agree, and, and I think there's this idea now that LeBron just owns the East and he's going to march through because he's done it seven years in a row. Like, that reputation is totally earned. But if you look at those past seven seasons what you've seen is like LeBron has elite talent around him and in a lot of those seasons there isn't that kind of talent in the rest of the Eastern Conference and I think both of those things have changed I think there are two teams that are you know borderline elite teams in Toronto and Philadelphia and if you look at that Cavs roster it looks a lot like the rosters that he used to drag into the playoffs and not be able to get to the finals because you know there just wasn't enough there and he couldn't do it by himself I'm not saying that he's not going to be able to do it this time, um, but I, I just think it's totally different than it's been in years past, and that's something people need to account for when, you know, you can't just say, like, 
it's LeBron's conference and he's going to march through. Like, I I agree in the one sense that like until somebody knocks them off, like you kind of just have to give them the benefit of the doubt. But if you're taking an analytical approach to this thing, like you're 100% right. They've played like a four seed. And that was like a typical four or five series where those teams were incredibly evenly matched. The Pacers outscored them by 40 points over the course of the series. So, you know, they were really the better team. Elite talent won out, but the the Pacers aren't as good as Philly and they're not as good as Toronto. And so, you know, as far as getting out of the East, yeah, I definitely think LeBron's in trouble because he's talking about being burnt out and you don't mm-hmm. really, you haven't really heard him talking about that in the past seven years, even though he has every right to be. Um, this is kind of the first time in a while he said something like that. So, like, if you were a Cavs fan, like, it's specific about the burnt out thing. Do you buy that from LeBron? Um, because, you know, Dwayne Casey, uh, head coach of the Raptors, also the one that inspired this podcast title, um, Dwayne Casey said at practice uh, on Monday that, you know, he doesn't quite believe that LeBron's tired because he sees LeBron playing, like, 42 minutes a game. Um, and, you know, while there are signs of wear and tear, you know, LeBron is still LeBron. LeBron still has a gear that he can get to when he needs to. And he doesn't want to exhaust them. Like, he doesn't want to exhaust the pipes that quickly. But, I mean, you know, when the moment called for it, he was phenomenal um, for the Cavaliers in, throughout the first round. And how much should that fatigue um, worry you as a Cavaliers fan? And how much of that, you know, conversely, should that encourage Ca- uh, Raptors fans? I think it should for sure because I think you know the one thing LeBron's fatigue will lead to is him even even if it's subconscious it's going to lead to taking possessions off defensively it mm-hmm. just is and I think if there's anything we've seen with this Cavs team all year it's that their only hope of even being semi-respectable defensively is LeBron basically becoming a one-man defense on his own so if LeBron's having to carry as much of the load offensively as we know he is going to, unless, like Joe said, maybe Love has a bounce-back series despite his hand issues. Maybe J.R. Smith starts hitting shots again. Maybe Jordan Clarkson and Rodney Hood look like serviceable NBA players again. Who knows? Maybe those things happen. But if they don't, LeBron's going to have to carry that load again offensively. He's already burnt out. He's never gone this deep in the first round before, you know, before a long finals run. So, yeah, I think he's going to have to take possessions off. I think the Raptors are just deep enough to capitalize on that and – they're, for once, the fresher team with home court advantage. I just, I just think there's way too much piling up against LeBron and the Cavs. Yeah, and I think, I mean, we say it enough, but what he is doing is unfreaking precedented yeah. right? Like, 33 years old, 15th season. I know, like, you know, those numbers are really just, like, embedded in the NBA consciousness right now because they've been repeated so many times this season, but it is insane. Plays all 82 games for the first time in his career, leads the league in minutes, and then goes out and has this first round series where, you know, he's accounting for like 70% of the Cavs offense, you know, with his scoring and his assists, and um, is playing 42 minutes a game, and you see him like cramping in game seven, and, you know, he said at the start of that game that he was going to play the whole game, and he actually wasn't able to, Mm -hmm. Um, and he doesn't look physically compromised but there are possessions where he's just like i can't do this right now um because like sooner or later everybody needs help and i don't know what to say like he he's played you know basically 20 plus playoff games for seven straight years that's that's like two full extra seasons yeah and that's that's why we've never seen anybody do anything like this before because it's insane it's insanely hard and like you know, I don't care how much money you're putting into your body every season. Like, eventually, that does have to catch up with you. I don't know that it's going to be this season, but, like, judging by what we've seen so far, like, 
Cash is right, man. Like, the, he hasn't done anything at the defensive end. Like, I know he had that block on – that goaltend on Oladipo. That was a goaltend, at yep. the end At the end of that game five and, like, can still, you know, elevate when he really, really needs to. But it's not like it's been in the past where he's like, okay, I'm going to play defense for this entire game. I just yeah. think that's out of the question at this point. Yeah, they hit him on Thaddeus Young. And Thaddeus Young had a really nice series, especially defensively against Kevin Love and neutralizing Love. But – I mean, Thaddeus Young is not the primary scorer for the Pacers by any means, and you very rarely saw LeBron guarding Oladipo. And even those situations where LeBron was guarding Oladipo, Oladipo was confidently going at him, whether it was, you know, pulling up for the the, the three or going all the way to the rim and, you know, occasionally dunking on LeBron, passing it through his legs. Like, um, the Pacers did a lot of great things, and I think, you know, in this conversation about the Cavaliers and LeBron and how tired they are and stuff like that, you know, we're also overlooking the fact that the Pacers played a tremendous series. They sh- you know, like Victor Oladipo said, if you don't respect the Pacers now, I don't respect you. And, you know, he's absolutely right. The Pacers have g- gained a lot of respect. And if you were the Raptors, how much of what the Pacers did um, are you going to copy? Like, how much of that defensive game plan are you going to copy um, if you're the Raptors? Because the Raptors, you know, catch like you said, they have more talent and they're actually deeper than the Pacers. Um and, you know, they they were a better defensive team during the regular season and stuff. So how much of that do you think can translate of what the Pacers did um, and into what the Raptors can do defensively? Well, I think you actually saw a little bit of that the first time the Raptors and the Cavs played this season, the, the game when the Raptors blew them out by 30, when, look, OG Anunoby's a rookie. No one's saying he's going to stop LeBron James. But what OG did in that first matchup with the Cavs was he just did enough that even though maybe LeBron would get the best of him, he didn't dominate him to the point where the Raptors had to send extra bodies. And they were able to stay home on their shooters, and that's why the Raptors were able to have the success they did in that game on the defensive end. And I think for the most part, that's what the Pacers did in this series. They decided that they were going to stay home on shooters, and they were going to take their chances with guys like Bogdan Bogdanovich, who, look, had a good series. <laughs> he did a really he, good job. Again, he did all you can ask for when you're matching up against LeBron James. Mm-hmm. Can you just do enough against this guy that we can leave everyone else home on the shooters? And I think the Raptors have done it before this season to the Cavs with success. And I, I think they're probably going to do it again. Although I think the one thing the Raptors have is that they probably have more bodies they can send at LeBron. You know, whether it's OG, Pascal Siakam, who's a kind of a rangy defender who did a hell of a job on John Wall in the right. first round. You know, like none of those guys are going to body LeBron. Nobody but I, is. I think body there's LeBron. enough guys um, on the Raptors team that can that can just guard him one-on-one for long stretches of time and that's all you can ask for right and i think that's another thing that casey said um at practice on monday is that he you know you got to give lebron something right and that's what you got to do with superstars you got to concede something and you either let him score or you let um him pass and find all these shooters and there's a case we made that you if you're the raptors you might actually want the cavaliers shooters to get more shots because the first round so many of these players like uh rodney hood you know jordan clarkson shooting less than 20% from deep, and Kevin Love had a off series. He couldn't finish around the basket. J.R. Smith was very inconsistent. You know, like, Tristan Thompson really only had that strong game seven. Like, it, Larry Nance has sort of been off. Like, maybe you do want to get the ball out of LeBron's hands because he creates all the offense for Cleveland. Um, but, Wolfon, if you were the Raptors, which approach would you take in terms of um, letting LeBron score, letting LeBron pass? I think I would lean more toward letting LeBron score um, just because – I don't think you necessarily like you don't want those other guys to start getting into a rhythm shooting the ball and if you're giving up open threes I just feel like eventually you're asking for them to bury you um with an avalanche and that that's like been the successful formula I think for the Cavs in the past is like um when teams like sell out to stop LeBron he's just such a good passer and has Mm -hmm. such good intuition and, and vision 
um, he's eventually going to be whipping kickout passes to open shooters. And, and, and if those guys get on a roll, then I think that could end up being worse ultimately. One thing I think the Pacers did a really good job of too is they were very selective um, about when and how they doubled. And they, they would send these double teams at LeBron when he was like 20 feet from the basket, when he was sort of like starting to make a move toward the basket or like starting a post up from outside the paint, basically. That's when they would help. And they were able to like get the ball out of his hands in those situations. But because they were still close enough to the perimeter, like they gave themselves an opportunity to recover in time. So they weren't giving out open threes every time. And like they did a really good job closing out on shooters. And th- the best thing they did defensively was just help and recover. Like they, they made very few mistakes. It's, it's like when you start doubling, I think, when LeBron has really deep post position that you get into trouble because then you can't recover out to three-point shooters as quickly. Um, and I think the Pacers, for the most part, were like, if LeBron is going like, to catch the ball this deep in the post, like we're just going to do our worst. And if he scores, he scores. But we're not going to like concede wide-open threes. Um, and I don't know. I think there's definitely something to be learned from that, right? Like if, if he's catching the ball close to the basket, I think you... There's only so much you can do, but but again, like I would I would lean towards staying home on shooters, and like if LeBron's going to do it himself, LeBron's going to do it himself. Like you'd rather get beat, I think, um, by by just like sticking to that game plan and like letting one guy beat you than allowing the rest of the team to get going. Right. Um, moving on to the Western Conference, the other big game of the weekend was uh, on Friday night, the Utah Jazz surviving a very very late push by the OKC Thunder um, you know on the Jazz's home court a very controversial finish um, because Gobert did fly out and make contact with Playoff P uh, Playoff P otherwise was just pretty terrible in that game shooting 2 of 16 but there was no foul called the last two minute report actually ruled that it was a correct non-call which was surprising we've definitely seen that foul call awarded um, the guy we just talked about in the last series, Kevin Love, uh, is you know someone that benefits from that call a lot. But the uh, Thunder, their season ended in six games, and there's a lot of questions about the Thunder. I mean, the Thunder have sort of been just uh, a very confused mess for most of the year, and uh, you know we we've talked about it in the last one. But we expected the Thunder to be better in the playoffs. They really weren't, and you know, Cash, it's like what you said, man. The Thunder were similar to the Cavaliers. That's their true talent level. It's not necessarily what the, the pieces and what the talent dictates. It's what the regular season says they are, and they sort of um, showed up there. So obviously the biggest thing for the Thunder is the, the free agency to Paul George. Um, Cash, if you were Paul George, would you stay? Would you stay in OKC and continue this, or would you try to look elsewhere? I mean, look, if I was – I personally – you know, no offense to Oklahoma City, but if I'm a multi-million dollar, 20-something athlete, I probably would prefer to take my talents elsewhere to like a bigger city. That, you know, and I think, you know, people criticize guys for thinking that way, but I, I think it's a very human thing. I think if you asked a lot of people, man, would you rather live in LA or OKC? Most would say LA. Now, some might prefer kind of like the small town thing, and that's fine. Do you? But, you know, I don't know. I would personally flee to a bigger market and uh, maybe a flashier place, but um, even if he's concerned just with winning, I think, you know, I, I think coming into the year, everyone thought, well, if he just wants to win and he's cool doing the whole small town thing, he'll stay in OKC. Well, now that's not really part of the equation because the roster that they've got and the lost roster that they'll have to largely bring back has proven it's not good enough. Um, you've got Melo out here talking about not wanting to come off the bench. Like, it's not going to get much better if everything stays the way it is. So I think you even take winning out of the equation now and 
yeah, no, I'd leave. I'd go somewhere where maybe you can put a little more of your own imprint on the team, not have to worry as much about it being Russ's team. And I don't just mean that from like a, a mental standpoint of, oh, I want it to be my team. I mean it from like a logistical standpoint on the court. It's very hard to adjust your game around the way Russell Westbrook plays. That's just a fact. So, yeah, I, I think he should leave and go somewhere where he can be the man again in a bigger market and still be able to win. Um, Wolfon, what would you do with the Mello situation? Because that's – it's kind of a – I mean, they knew they, what they were getting into with Mello. They, they probably expected a little bit more production out of him. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he's got a huge player con- option for next season, and he's already insisted he's not coming off the bench. Wolfon, what would you do with that Mello situation? All right, so I have a couple things to say on like on this front. Um, what what would I do? I think I was talking to my friend Mike about this actually over the weekend, and he suggested if like if I were Billy Donovan, I would just go out and do like all the media hits and just start talking about how excited I am to have Mello coming off the bench next season. <laughs> and the, the look, the fact is, Mello does not or should not have any leverage in this situation, right? Because this isn't a situation where the organization is going to side with the player over the coach. Mm-hmm. Like, they don't need him. I, I think probably if, if they had their druthers, like, they would be happy for him to opt out. He's not going to, right? Like, he's going to opt in. Um, so, like, I, I don't know. I feel like unless Russ is griping about it or, like, for whatever reason, Paul George makes that, like, uh, contingency of him staying in OKC, like... I don't know why you would cede to Mello on this front and say, okay, you say you're not coming off the bench, so you're not coming off the bench. Like, I think you want to set a precedent where if you're Billy Donovan, like, come out and be like, look, like, our team is better when you come off the bench. You know, like, they were better when Jeremy Grant played with the starters, and that was, like, plain as day to anybody who watched that Jazz series. So, it sucks. Like... He was a, obviously a fantastic player in his prime, like a no-doubt Hall of Famer, one of the great scorers we've ever seen. Like, that's not who he is anymore. And at a certain point, like, he just needs to come to grips with the reality of what he is physically at this point in his career. And it's disappointing that he hasn't done that or can't do that right now because I think he could be a really effective role player. You know, playing 20 to 25 minutes a game, coming off the bench, playing against second units, being more of, like, a focal point of the offense. Like that could be really beneficial to him. And it's, I don't know. To me, it's like, it's impossible not to compare his attitude toward it to Wade's. And right. like Wade, like similarly, like a, re- a more accomplished player, like a better player in his right. prime, um, you know, and he was able to swallow his pride and sign with- But even with Wade, like he still had to like get humbled a little bit by going through Chicago and then leaving Miami because Miami gave but, all the money to. But shouldn't Melo be humbled at this point? Like, <laughs> yeah, what? that's like, I, true. That's true. You know what I mean? Like, that's the but thing. But he's clearly like, not like, though. Even, he already like, said he, he's not coming he, off the bench. He came out of that New York mess looking okay, you know, right. because it was like Phil got like got to be the bad guy, and Melo came out of it looking like this put upon star who was treated poorly by the organization, which was true to an extent. But uh, he was not doing himself any favors by just like refusing to accept the fact that he is not as good as he used to be, and that like he can help a team win more. Um, by, you know, sacrificing a little bit. And, yeah, that to me just, like, speaks to, like, the very disparate priorities that him and Wade have, right? Like, Wade was willing to make that sacrifice. I know it didn't work out in Cleveland, but he played well in that role, I thought, for them. And he continued to come off the bench in Miami, and he seems really happy with where he's at. Whereas, like, for Melo, it's always been, 
I do think that he wants to win, but I think that he has always only wanted to win if it was on his terms. Right. And and at a certain point, like he's just got to reconcile the fact that like those two things are not compatible if they ever were. You know, like right, right. at this point, they're definitely not. Yeah, uh, I was gonna say I think a perfect example of what Joe just said is you know like uh, game five when the Thunder were making that huge comeback with Melo on the bench and he was like pleading with Mo Cheeks for some reason instead of <laughs> Billy Donovan, but he was pleading with Mo Cheeks like to get back in the game. And then the next day he said it was like, oh, like just this competitive drive, like wanting to be out there. Man, if you were watching that game from the bench as that your team was making a comeback, we've seen plenty of examples of even superstars being like, just like ride it out, let them go. James Harden in the, the game when the Rockets started that rally against the Clippers a few years ago. If you remember that, James Harden was on the bench and did not ask to go back in. He was like, yo, let, let these guys ride it out. So Melo just like needing to be back in there, even though it was clear as day, they were like rallying without him is a perfect example of what Joe just said about he only wants to win if it's on his terms. Yeah, ironically, I think OKC would be much better off if they were able to flip Melo into spare pieces, like, you know, a shooter and a center, like, you know, like Doug McDermott <laughs> and, and Ennis Cantor. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's a tricky situation because if if you bring back Paul George, and Paul George obviously knows this, but if you bring back Paul George at the maximum contract, the Thunder are going to be in the luxury tax. They can't add any pieces. And when we talk about, like, bringing Melo off the bench, who were we really talking about in terms of giving more opportunities to, right? Jeremy Grant is a nice, live, active body. But once uh, like once uh, Roberson comes back, you can't have Roberson and Jeremy Grant in the lineup. That's just too much non-shooters out there um, for you to not stretch the floor, uh, even though they are very athletic and they you know do more defensively and in terms of just providing hustle plays like offensive rebounds than Melo. You know, that's that's kind of an issue there. And also, if you look at the rest of that bench, there's nobody on that bench. The, Raymond Felton is like... The Thunder's best bench player by far. He's a free agent too, and he's a free agent, yeah. right? And who knows? I mean, they could probably replace Raymond Felton, but still, <laughs> you would hope. Yeah. You you would hope, yeah, you would hope. Although they did play with yet someone. another elite talent leaves OKC, man. Oh my, yeah, man, I can't I can't wait until people rant about how you got better. Um, but also, like you know, they played with Samaj Kristen like last season, right? So like it ne- it doesn't necessarily get better. Uh, in terms of you know the talent at backup, and then you look at the rest of the players like Patrick Patterson has been a disappointment for them. Um, Kyle Singler has been a disappointment for them, uh, and you know what else is there? Like, there's not a lot of prospects waiting on that bench. Like, yeah. there's Terrence is, Ferguson, who's like looked, sure he's got some bounce, like he's athletic, he can maybe shoot threes. I don't know. He's but, like 150 pounds. He's, no, they, he's like a toothpick. They haven't done a great job filling out that roster, especially through the draft, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's been a big failing i think that that's one thing to me as you're going through this roster and i've been saying it for a couple of years now i think sam presti's lost some of his luster man i think a lot of people i'm not saying the guy hasn't had a successful nba career as an executive but like a lot of people looked at this guy as like boy wonder you know yeah. and then you kind of look at it it's like okay how many of those picks for example were like him taking a shot like okay kevin durant after Greg Odom was off the board. You're making that pick. Like, yeah. that, you, that's no stroke of genius. You're making that pick. Westbrook um, was a pretty nice Westbrook pick. Westbrook was a, a nice pick. You know, really Harden was projected to go where he ended up going. And right. Like, Ibaka was a nice one, too. Yeah, it was. Like, he's yeah. had some nice picks. I'm just saying, like, people made him made him out to be this, like, right. executive genius who could do no wrong. And it's like, if you look at the last few years, I think he's done a lot wrong. He hasn't built that roster very well, even this past summer. And I say it again, like, I think he made the good move for George. And then I just think he kind of undid some of that with the move for Melo. Uh, Will, you've mentioned it before. Like, I think they would have been better off. It's one of those things where they might have been better off with, like, uh, two nickels instead of a dime. You know what I mean? Like, the mm-hmm. extra pieces instead of that one piece. 
Um, and then, man, Patrick Patterson, which looked like a good signing for them, a value for sure, signing, yeah. turned out so bad. And I think, you know, Patterson could have unlocked a lot of things from even if we talk about Melo coming off the bench. Like, I think if you have Westbrook, George, uh, Roberson, and Patterson at his best mm-hmm. with Adams, that's a phenomenal starting five. Yeah. With two superstars, like, that is a great starting five with a little bit of everything. And Patterson just goes into the tank from day one and, like, never recovers. Yeah, he recovers. had that knee surgery. Yeah, like, he was just... He, doesn't been the same. Yeah, he was really bad this year. So, I think there's just so many examples of that over the last few years at the Thunder where it's like, well, if this guy does this, but then he doesn't. Um, yeah. And I don't know what it is. Maybe it's bad luck. Maybe it's a little bit of bad development on their part. I don't know, but it, it, a lot has gone wrong for them. Yeah, but you also look at, like, some of the picks in the late lottery that they've gotten, and they just haven't really made the most of those at all, right? Yeah. right? Like, Houston's hasn't really panned out, and, like, Mitch McGarry, like... Um, He's out of the league. Yeah, and I don't know, man. I, I you know, good teams like that are you know are able to stay kind of like in the upper echelon of the league for a long time, uh, are able to find you know diamonds in the rough in in the back part of the first round of the draft, and the Thunder just haven't been able to do that. And I think that's really coming back to bite them right now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I, that that's the, that's the trickiest thing always for an executive is just like how do you build that supporting cast. Uh, after you have those stars, and obviously OKC had the stars. They had the they had you know the most difficult part, the one that's most scarce is the stars. But then you look at like what people like you know Daryl Morey have done in Houston, just consistently able to even if, like why didn't they get Gerald Green? Like Gerald Green has been like a nice piece off the bench. Obviously you don't rely on him consistently, but he can come in and do a job for you. Like why can't OKC even have Gerald Green, who was just signed like as a free agent in the middle of the season, right? And let alone signing guys like. You know, Luke Richard and Bahamute, who I thought would have been a better piece than Patrick Patterson, even without the contracts. Um, you know, even P.J. Tucker, pieces like that. Or you look at, you know, Toronto with Masai Ujiri, consistently able to churn out useful pieces, either through the late end of the draft and also in free agency. Like, that's where, you know, that's where Presti has really failed. And if you really look at the OKC situation, it's, a, it's about to be a very expensive roster in a very small market. And Russell Westbrook is about to start making $40 million a year. And he is 29 years old right now. Obviously, Westbrook is still phenomenal. He's still very capable. But we all know if he loses a little bit of that athleticism, things are going to look really, really tough in OKC. So this is going to be a very pivotal summer for them. Um, Also, speaking of pivotal summers, um, you know, we had some disappointing flameouts. I feel like every team that lost in the first round um, in the Eastern Conference can feel a little bit disappointed. You know, Indiana can feel good, but they still outscored Cleveland. They should really have done better but in terms of those teams in the east and what they should do going forward um you know cash you wanted to talk about the bucks um the bucks losing in seven games to a really shorthanded celtics team how do they move forward with their core right now man this is you know i'm almost at a loss because you look at you look at Giannis, and there's no doubt this guy's a transcendent talent like this guy is could be the best player in the league for a very long period of time future mvp um, and he's that good pretty much right now. He's that good right now. Um, and, you know, he's got flaws to his game. He can't shoot. We know that. And they just have not done a good job. Like, they've, this isn't like this is Giannis here, too. Like, Giannis has been there for a while now mm-hmm. and has been on this steady rise for a while. And yet that management team has still not figured out how to maximize his talents with by surrounding him with, you know, shooters and, like, proper talents around him. You look at the move, they, the big move they made this year. They went out and got a ball-dominant guard who can't really shoot right. in Eric Bledsoe. And that was the move that was supposed to put them over the top. It's just like this they don't seem to have logic when they make these moves. Like, do you realize who your 
franchise player is and the kind of players he needs around him because it does not seem like you realize it. And then you look at it, like this team's got $105 million committed for next season. Not a cent of that is unguaranteed. That's money on their books, one of those being Bledsoe's contract. Um, obviously, love Giannis. I'm a huge Chris Middleton fan. I think he's like a perfect glue guy. Like He was phenomenal in the playoffs. Borderline all-star, honestly. Yeah. Like borderline all-star by production and as a two-way player. So I think they've obviously got the pieces there. Even Brogdon, like whether you think he's a starter or not, like that's a solid piece. Like that's fine. Right. They need to surround Giannis and even Middleton, I guess, with some shooters. Um, they just don't seem to know what they're doing. And before they do anything, they should probably find a coach. Because yeah. Giannis Antetokounmpo has not been coached by a quality NBA coach yet in his career. You know, Larry Drew, sorry, buddy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jason Kidd, your only contribution in that franchise was spilling a drink uh, on purpose. Giannis was clinging <laughs> on to he was, Jason Kidd. He was, he was coaching the Nets when he did that. Though. Oh, there you yeah. go. So he yeah. can't even – that wasn't even a contribution to that the was, Bucks. That was a, honestly a truly an innovation. Um, yeah. And also Jason Kidd was like – Really early on the small ball stuff, but I feel like that has really petered out. Yeah, he was also like there early on the like blitz everything, defending the pick and roll, and be super aggressive because we've got all this length, and it's just like they never figured it out, and then they never really went away from it. And when they did go away from it, they were still more aggressive than the average team. Like there was just so much of whether it's coaching, management, the moves they made about this roster and about this organization that frankly did not make sense, and it still doesn't make sense. And I know he's young, but you know. As we've seen with other franchises and losing stars, like time goes by pretty quickly, mm-hmm. and the clock is ticking. And every year that you waste uh, giving Giannis a very mediocre at best coach, surrounding him with non-shooters, like these are wasted years of a transcendent talent. What Young, do you do? What do you do with Parker? That's the that's the key move right yeah. there, right? I mean, <laughs> Jabari not... Jabari has shown flashes at various uh-huh. points in his career. He's also got you know coming off two. ACL surgeries yeah, and has never really been able to do it for a full season because injuries or inconsistencies kind of crept up. So uh, I don't know how comfortable I'd be committing a lot of money mm-hmm. to, again, with a team that's already so capped out and yeah. inflexible. That's the thing though, right? Like you'll at least have his bird rights so you can at least retain him and maybe yeah. try to move that asset later. But I think yeah. that's what they'll try and do. Like, yeah. I don't think they can afford to let him walk they can't. for nothing. They can't. Um, and maybe they'll try and work a sign and trade. Um, sure. Yeah. I feel like they're, he probably still has enough value uh, and enough, you know, perceived upside around the league that they could probably flip him for something valuable. Um, maybe just like a, you know, like a more dominant rim protector um, or an elite shooter, something like that. that they got to like, stop trying to get centers, man. <laughs> it's it's a real problem. Like, they signed, what's his name, Plumlee to, like, a huge contract. They signed John Henson to a huge they, contract. But Larry they, Sanders, I think, might Zeller, still be They need to stop getting bad Look centers. Zeller. But, like, if, yeah. they're, if they're not going to commit to playing, like, to playing Giannis at center, and, you know, those lineups haven't worked as well as <laughs> I, I have expected them to, but, like, if that's not going to be sort of their path forward, um, then they need somebody. Like, he, he had success playing alongside Don in that series, for sure, stretches yeah. at least. But I, I just don't know if that's, like, tenable long term and I feel like they need somebody to play beside him who's actually good who can actually protect protect the rim who can actually rebound yeah um and I mean I don't know or or like a guy who can space the floor you know like a, like a five who can shoot and protect the rim mm. um like thought maker <laughs> in theory yeah. but like yeah knowing the bugs the history they're probably going to sign like marching Gortat or something <laughs> yeah they'll, they'll <laughs> sign another like aging or immobile center who yeah. can't shoot and then they'll sign like a non-shooting guard or something like yeah yeah God. i guess i mean <laughs> free Giannis. 
I don't know what like what would you think if they if they did a sign and trade with the Clippers for DeAndre? Oh my like a God. double sign, like I, a double sign and trade. It would help I, them for sure, but I mean, like at that point, that's your team. You're completely locked in. Your team yeah. is Bledsoe, Middleton, Giannis, whoever's playing four, uh, or maybe another guard. You might put them in like you know Brogdon, and then. DeAndre and like that's not a championship team. The one thing I will say that sometimes doesn't get enough credit is like a big man like that that's as efficient on the roll as he is mm-hmm. can actually space it. You know what I mean? Like people yeah, think of sure. spacing Vert- is only shooters. Spacing. But yeah, there's a such thing as vertical spacing and DeAndre would bring that. Yeah. Teams will just zone against that team, man. <laughs> They're just gonna zone. And that's why then you hope that it's not Joe Prunty or Jason Kidd or Larry yeah. Drew on the other end who can then figure out an adjustment to that. Yeah, that's true. All right, Wolfham, you want to talk about the Pacers. How are you going to rebuild the Pacers? Or what do, it's not even rebuild. What do you add to the Pacers so that they can take the next step? Man, um, my my dream scenario, and and I wrote about this a little bit. Uh, dream about the Pacers. <laughs> yeah, I dream about the Pacers, man. They're a really interesting team, and I want to see them succeed because I think they had a great, like, really feel-good season. They were one of my favorite teams to watch all year. Oladipo is one of my favorite players to watch. And uh, when there was kind of like talk of Kemba Walker being available around the deadline, that was my favorite potential trade scenario. Um, I think that backcourt would be so dynamic, like just the combined speed, like off the dribble shooting, um, and like ability to get into the paint of both of those guys. I think they could like play so well off of each other. They would be unbelievable in transition. Um, and look, I, I, eventually he, if they're gonna take the next step, like he needs another elite talent next to him. I'm excited to see how much better Oladipo can get uh, with another summer of work, like the fact that he made the leap that he did in one off season is insane. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that from anybody going into his fifth season in the league before. Right, just a ridiculous leap. And you know, if if he has higher to climb, like I'm really excited to see where he can go. But I don't look at that roster and see like another potential star, which caps their upside as a team. Right, like I don't know if Miles Turner is going to be that guy. He could be a good. He was disappointing in the. Caps he was series. he was really disappointing. Like he had he had his moments, but in that game seven, he was terrible. Yeah. And Sabonis was pretty bad as well. Like I, I think those guys are both young, so I think they can get better. But I don't know that either of those guys is going to be a star. They'd be great complementary pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually think like the Pacers are kind of in position to maybe swing a big trade and. The reason for that is like they have all these non-guaranteed or partially guaranteed contracts that they can use to help a team like get off of salary. They don't have a ton of assets to move. You know, they'll have their pick this year. They have TJ Leaf, who's like meh. Um, Why did Joe, they draft TJ Leaf? I don't know, man. <laughs> that looked bad at the time, and it looks yeah. bad now. And they have like uh, I don't know, like Joe Young. Like they don't they they don't have exciting prospects. Lance Stevenson. Yeah. Like. <laughs> Joe Young but, has only appeared in the Pacers uniform in. Paul George's playoff fantasy Gatorade <laughs> commercial where he hit a game winner that he never did in real life. Um, but yeah, anyway, I, I think what, what they do have is uh, like if, if say they wanted to pry Kemba from the Hornets and the Hornets Ooh. made it a condition to like get off of that Batum contract, the Pacers could absorb that Batum contract because they have all these like non guarantees. They have, um, uh, Boyan Bogdanovich, ten point five million, uh, partially guaranteed. Darren Collison, ten million, partially guaranteed. Al Jefferson, ten million, partially guaranteed. The Jefferson one is like a bit prohibitive because I think he has like a four million dollar guarantee. But it's better than Batum's contract. But yeah, like you can use all that salary to basically absorb Batum's contract, who's still a useful player. Like obviously very disappointing, and it looks like a really terrible deal right now. But if 
you know, he's not useless, right? He's still providing positive value. Swing a trade like that where you attach a draft pick and maybe like a young, semi-intriguing prospect and pull in somebody like Kemba uh, who can really make that a dynamic backcourt and see how far you can go, like building a team around Oladipo. Like he, he, I think he proved definitively that he is a player who deserves to be built around. Yeah. And um, they have some flexibility cap-wise because they have only $40 million in guaranteed money for next season. So a lot of that's going to depend on their options like Thad Young has a 13 million dollar option that he's probably going to opt into which you don't even mind at this point no he's really was good really serviceable yeah. he's pretty core to a uh, core piece of their identity yeah um one team that has almost no flexibility whatsoever was the Washington Wizards uh, who had the fifth highest payroll uh, and they lost in six games to the Toronto Raptors yeah they took two games at home but in classic Wizards fashion um you know in key moments they got destroyed in the two last two fourth quarters of game five and six when they both lost um you know they weren't even competitive and they, they were in those games for three quarters and then they lost and it has to be a very disappointing season for the wizards um you know for a team that sort of fancies themselves as like one of the best teams in the league and they certainly talk about it that way they won 43 games they were the a seed and they got dismissed right and if you look at their contract situation it's really really bad um, Otto Porter is a piece that they could probably move, and that's probably the one they're going to move. I mean, if you read in between the lines of what John Wall and Bradley Beal said, well, you don't even have to read in between the lines because they're so uh, abrasive. Um, but, you know, John Wall said, we need more athletic bigs, and they got and it's up to management to figure out what they do around him and Beal. And so the obvious, you know, move there would be if you could flip Otto Porter for a big, um, you know, it's it's unclear who they would bring him back. You know, uh, maybe something like a sign and trade with Otto Porter for Demarcus Cousins that might work nicely for the Pelicans. Uh, it could also work nicely for Demarcus because he gets to play with John Wall, and you know they might want to keep John Wall happy. Um, and you know, in terms of the rest of that roster, I mean, before you do anything with it, though, you should probably get rid of Ernie Grunfeld because this man has been at the helm of Washington for like 15 seasons. His record over that time. 526 against 665 losses, right? So, like, he's, you know, 140 games under 500 over a 15-year span. I don't know what else you need him to prove to you in order for the Wizards to just let him go. He's rebuilt the team a couple times. Five. He's had five coaches in that span, too. He's had five coaches, you know, like, you know, I'm sure Wizards fans aren't that thrilled with Scott Brooks at the moment, and it just looks to be a mess, so... First off, please, Ted Leonsis. Ted Leonsis is not going to can him. I think, actually, there are some faint reports out there that he's actually been re-signed, Grunfeld has, which I'm sure Wizards fans <laughs> are just thrilled with. I made the joke when they won game four against the Raptors that, like, oh, these two round one wins probably just got Ernie Grunfeld another, another half decade. Years. Yeah, like. <laughs> oh, my God. But, yeah, seriously, get rid of Grunfeld um, first and then, you know, try to move that Porter contract for something else. Because I think Wall and Beal proved, as they always do in the playoffs, that they're very, very capable players, and they have consistently performed. You know, Wall was probably the best player in the first-round series against Toronto, even though they lost, and it's just like the supporting cast is not good. And so, you know, you at least got to bring it back for one more year. You got to bring in a big because Gortat's going to leave, and you can't start Mahimni or, you know, Jason Smith. Again, like, seriously, they signed Andrew Nicholson, who got traded and bought out, and then Nicholson was at the Raptors game because he's from Brampton, like... Man, it's it's a bad look for the Wizards, but seriously, they just got to replace their GM and move forward from there. But um, but you wouldn't try and split up that backcourt. No, 
No, you got to give it at least one more season. And I think Wall and Beal actually do get along to some degree. They're both like, they both have the same mentality of us versus them. It's the only issue is with them is the rest of the roster. So <laughs> um, we're going to take a quick break right here and we're going to come back on the other side with Make or Miss. Welcome back to the second half of Pound the Rock. Uh, as always, this is your reminder and maybe your plea to please uh, rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Uh, it really helps us grow. Of course, you know we're only like seven episodes in, uh, and especially if you go on iTunes, hit that five star, write a nice review, you know, compliment Cash's hair or Wolfon's voice or you know anything like that. Um, it will do us a lot of help. So. Please do that. And also, uh, we know we're on SoundCloud, we're on iTunes, we're on Stitcher, uh, we're on Spotify, uh, we're on Google Play. So find us there. So the make or miss segment, guys, um, you know, it's pretty self-explanatory. If you agree with it, it's a make. If you disagree, it's a miss. First one, Victor Oladipo is the best NBA comeback story this season and probably in a decade, make or miss. Easy make. I mean, I don't know about how long it's been since there's been, but easily like this year make and I think when you're talking about most improved like as big of a leap as we've ever seen a player make from one year to the next I think he was not a bad player but like I'd say pretty average-ish replacement level guard swingman whatever you want to call him and this year he was a top 15 player an all-nba talent probably an all-defensive first team talent like led the league in steals while carrying such a huge load offense like just an absolute two-way beast yeah yeah, I mean, I don't know if anyone's ever won uh, Most Improved Player unanimously before, but I feel like he's probably going to win it unanimous, unanimously and should. Um, I, I've talked about it enough, I think, um, but it deserves talking about because it was like, you know, one of the one of the great mid-career leaps, I think, that we've ever seen. So, mm. A shout-out to Emeka Okafor, though. As far as comebacks, <laughs> in terms of a comeback story, that, <laughs> uh, that one's great. I mean, earlier this year he's wearing like a SpongeBob SquarePants uniform, and then he's literally like playing in the playoffs. That's you know, uh, it's wild. You know, can I just throw one thing? In? You know, what? it would never happen. But you know, what would make the Pacers and like the Oladipo thing actually like the greatest story in the world is imagine Paul George, free agent, with all Ooh, that cap Indiana. space Indiana has. Like, yeah. ooh. They don't have a starting small forward for the next few years. Goes there and like it's insane again, how perfect that. It's a pie would be. in the sky. Like I'm not saying oh it'll happen, but it would be such a hilarious and like pretty awesome story for Indiana. Paul George can get back to his fishing trips and be all good. <laughs> yeah, that's true. All right, make or miss. I like how by, by the way earlier you were like, yeah, I don't know about small markets. You know, I probably go to a big market. It's like <laughs> I'll go back to Indiana. Hey man, those fishing <laughs> trips meant something to him for sure. Yeah, he does love fishing. All right, um, next one, make or miss. The Houston Rockets are being slept on. I mean, they're crushing their competition. Um, you know, they just crushed the Jazz in game one. It wasn't really that close. Are, are the Houston Rockets being slept on? Cash? I'm going to say that's a miss. I think people. I think they were slept on for a lot of the year. I think people understand now that this team is very capable of winning a championship and very capable of actually not, like, not just competing but potentially beating the Warriors in the best of seven. Mm. I think it's a miss, too. I, I think there's something to be said for the fact that we don't really talk about them that much but I think the only reason for that is we just come to expect excellence from them they've done it all season long and I think for the most part we just expected that these first two rounds were going to be academic for them anyway like we've all just been waiting for the conference finals in the west right um in the east things have been kind of wide open I don't think anyone knows what's going to happen in the west it's been like all right like get us to Rockets Warriors 
and fully healthy Warriors, I'm still picking to win that series, but the Rockets have definitely done enough to make me believe that it's going to be a, a fair fight. Um, so I'm excited to get there. And uh, yeah, no, I don't think they're being slept on, but maybe maybe ignored. Is yeah, way I to put it. Th- that's where I got it as a make because like this is almost a curse of a team that doesn't have drama and turmoil because like we end up talking about OKC way more. We end up talking even about the Wizards more, right? Or the the Heat, but like you know. But that's these, a credit to act- that's a credit to your team. If exactly, people, you know, like exactly. That was like the Spurs, Spurs for so long. Yeah. So the, the one thing with the Rockets, like they believe that they, as they should, they won sixty five yeah, games. Sure. But like they truly believe that they're the best team in the league, that they're better than the Warriors, um, that they're going to win right. the championship. Like I did a piece earlier this year, like why not Houston? Right. About like why can't they win it? And Clint Capella, like matter of factly, was just like we know that people think the Warriors are going to beat us, and we're just going to prove them wrong in May. Like not like. He didn't even see it as, like, he was making a grand statement. He was just like, no, this is clearly what it is. Like, we're going to beat the Warriors. Right. And, honestly, like, the Rockets have a lot to be encouraged about. Like, the fact that so much of their isolation offense has translated over to the playoffs. James Harden is still leading the NBA. Well, slightly. LeBron's also right up there with him. But in terms of playoffs, he's scoring 1.21 points per isolation play, which is just insane. Um, And, you know, we've seen, like, James Harden have games where he struggled and you know in the past obviously that's where the Rockets would have been torpedoed but in that game too when he shot like 2 of 18 or whatever there was Chris Paul and the rest of the team to step up around him and so you know Capella like you mentioned has been playing well so I, I don't know I think the Rockets are being slept on a little bit but uh, next one make or miss the New Orleans Pelicans finally missed DeMarcus Cousins I'm going to call it a miss for now just because I, I know that game one was really ugly for him and uh, he's an excellent player that they could probably use in this series, but I still think that they have a better chance of defending the Warriors without him on the floor. One thing I'll say is, like, I think uh, the Pelicans thrived after he went out by just playing super, super fast. You know, they play the fastest team, uh, the fastest pace in the league after he went down, and I don't know if that's the recipe for success against Golden State. Like, the teams that have had success against him in the playoffs have been the teams that have been, like, grinding it out, slowing down the pace, muddying it up a little bit. That's how the Cavs had success against them in the finals, you know, 2015 and 2016. So I think if if they're playing this go-go-go style, that might be playing into Golden State's hands a little bit. And DeMarcus is a guy who's like a really fantastic half-court scorer and would definitely be beneficial uh, to have. But I just wonder if he wouldn't give that back at the defensive end because he's not quick enough. And I think that like the Warriors would really attack him in pick and roll a lot. Um especially with Curry now getting set to come back. So I don't know that they would have had a whole lot of hope in this series anyway. I Honestly, I expected them to be way more competitive in game one than they were, but I just don't know if having Boogie there would have necessarily helped them that much. The pace thing is funny because Clay Thompson came out and said after game one that the Pelicans' pace like had him like so tired. And yet they still won by like eighty points in that game. I think like, he was just—I yeah. think he was fibbing. He was just like, "Oh man, that, I, I, that pace." It was such a, he was like reaching for a like, way to give them credit. Steve Kerr told them to like give Alvin Gentry's team some credit, like yeah. after the game. Uh, yeah, no, no I, I think he—he's he, trying to bait them to playing fast because the Warriors are obviously the best team at playing yeah. fast. Yeah, no question. Yeah, no, I think Joe touched on something with you know teams that have had any kind of postseason success against the Warriors that slowed them down. I think that is where they miss Boogie. I think. Um, you know, when it comes to like a slow it down, just like knock you out in the middle kind of game, there's few, if any, better than Boogie. And I think when you're matched up against a team like the Warriors, man, you need all the star talent you could. You know, you need as much 
talent as you can find that's capable of taking over a game and you know as good as Drew Holiday is as great as playoff Rondo can be and all these other guys Anthony Davis is the only player on that roster that can truly take over a game or a series and I think Boogie would have given them another option to do that yeah uh, I, I'm also going to call this a make I mean Wolfon of course like the, the stylistic changes are probably not possible with Boogie on the roster but you just look at game one you know, a game where Anthony Davis really had a down game because he was getting shut down by Draymond Green. If you have Boogie out there, Draymond can only guard one guy. And Dray- Draymond's really going to have his hands full with two of those players in there. And, you know, you look at the rest of the the Warriors' like rotation, the, the point where they're weakest is center. And that's always been true about this Warriors team, and they've sort of compensated um, by making so many threes around them that it really runs centers off the floor. But if you can have both DeMarcus and Anthony Davis crashing the glass in a series like this, like you might be able to actually hold the you know, Warriors to a slower pace, which I actually think would help the Pelicans in this case. Because the Pelicans are going to try with the run with the Warriors. The Warriors have way better shooting to actually play a running style. And they're, they're better at passing the ball, and they're deeper as well. So, I mean, it's, um, you know... DeMarcus Cousins is, at the end of the day, like an all-star talent. And, you know, especially in the playoffs, when offense is hard to come by, you need that star talent. And I feel like right now is pretty much the only time. Because they obviously didn't miss DeMarcus in the first round. But right now, they kind of miss him. All right, next one, make or miss. Um, the Heat should move on from Hassan Whiteside. Uh, I, yeah, I'll call it a make because they should. Whether they can is a totally different question because mm. I, I don't know how they're going to get off of that contract. I don't know who out there is looking to trade for him and what else do you do at this point? Like, th- I think you know they're right now trying to repair the relationship between Whiteside and Spolstra. Pat Riley is getting ready to step in and do his godfather thing and, and make everything right in Heatland. But the fact is... Uh, you know, it, it's not entirely like the mellow thing because Hassan Whiteside was never a Hall of Fame level talent, but it's similar in the sense that Hassan Whiteside, I think, overrates his own ability and hasn't been able to come to grips with the fact that the team that he plays for might be better off with him playing fewer minutes. Like, he, he just has not accepted that. He, ha- he didn't accept it all year, and all year we saw the Heat having a ton of success playing Bam Adebayo or Kelly Olynyk in his place, and... Then you would hear Whiteside carping about it after the game, not showing any kind of self-awareness about how the team was playing, you know, and how they might want to play differently and have success, you know, mixing and matching and playing different lineups that uh, forced the defense to make adjustments. All he wanted was minutes, 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 touches, touches, touches. And I don't know how that situation gets sorted out with everyone coming out of it being happy. Yeah, like, I, I, to be honest, I've never been a huge Hassan Whiteside fan. I just think his his basketball IQ, maybe his general IQ, his like, self-awareness has never, ever caught up to his physical talents. And that's why like, even when he had those couple breakout years and he was coming up for free agency, I remember thinking and saying at the time, like, someone's going to give him a max contract. I just don't think Pat Riley's going to be the one to do it because like, yeah. he, he's too smart for that, and he ended up doing it. And I think now you're seeing why they shouldn't have done it in the first place. Like, you know, this is a guy that could have, like, a – double-double with three blocks would have been a complete net negative on the night and his team lost by 20 and he'll be out there like uh, gloating about the fact that he had a double-double with three blocks. He just doesn't get it. And he's never going to get it. He's not like a young player. He's a guy, he's a late bloomer because teams didn't want to take a chance on him early in his career because of his head. Yeah, Um, and he had to go overseas and play pretty much all over the world before he came back and, yeah, you know. So uh, they should definitely try to cut bait, but like Joe said, it's easier said than done when he's making the money that he's making yeah auto porter make that trade (laughs) 
No, actually, I don't know. I, you know, that would give... Otto Porter is a way better player. Hassan Whiteside would fit in perfectly with the Wizards because he thinks he's better than he really is. <laughs> like, oh, he, I, I oh thought you were going to say he fits in perfectly. Like, they're going to create the most dysfunction possible. Well, that you too, have but... John Wall, Bradley Veal, I'm and he- Hassan Whiteside. I'm here for it, man. Yeah, it's like, I think I think the Wizards should go get Melo, Hassan Whiteside, <laughs> Eric Bledsoe, uh, anyone else that like likes to run their mouth despite no success. Like oh. the Wizards should just go all yeah. in on guys that you have Ernie Grunfeld out there like uh, like Nick Fury and the Avengers. Be like, <laughs> I'm I'm putting a team together. Yeah, like that team would be the most glorious 44 win first round out ever. Oh man, yeah. No, pray for Scott Brooks. Pray for Scott Brooks. <laughs> Scott, please, you, you can do better. All right, uh, last one. This was a bit of a controversial one, but make or miss. The officiating in these playoffs are worse than ever. Obviously, there's a lot of talk about the officiating. Um, you know, is it worse than ever? Who knows, really? But yeah, I'll, I'll call it a miss. Like, I, I'm not. Joe really... trying to save his money, not trying to get fined. Yeah, here. that's right. Um, I uh, don't know what. Like, I can't pick out a year where it's been worse necessarily. It just seems like there probably has been, and there are obviously specific instances of like pretty egregious officiating. Game five of Dallas Miami in 2006. Mm. Um, Game six of Kings Lakers back in like 2002. Um, that one's confirmed. Yeah. yeah. Shout out to Tim Donnie. Yeah. I don't know. If, no I don't know if that counts him. as confirmation exactly, but true. Um, yeah. Get that money, Tim Donnie. Uh, yeah. No, don't. We don't. We don't endorse that. <laughs> we don't. We have, we have established a party line that we don't endorse. So much for Joe trying <laughs> to save his money. Like. All right, we'll edit that out later. Um, We're not. Right, so I think. I think there's been a lot of scrutiny and justifiably so because there has been this like emphasis on um, like a different sort of officiating this year and like calling specific things differently. And a big one was those continuation fouls. Um, Another one seems to be like moving screens and it's just like all this stuff that is enforced so selectively and um, the, the kind of specifications of these rules are like so hazy that um, you just never really know how, it's going to be judged or how it's going to be officiated. And ultimately it just comes down to a judgment call, right? Like that so much of NBA officiating does come down to a a judgment call. It's not like baseball where it's like who got to the bag first, you know, like, was it a catch or did it hit the ground? Like, was it inside the strike zone or was it not? Like those things are like so much more cut and dried than like, was it an offensive foul? Like who beat who to the spot? Like, did this guy push off? Did this guy flop? You know, Mm. like, um, and it happens so fast. Like, I just think there isn't ever <laughs> any amount of uh, respect given to the fact that, like, this is an unbelievably difficult game to officiate at this high a level. Yeah. And especially this year where it's like, you know, you're putting an emphasis on officiating things a little bit differently. I think there were always kind of bound to be some growing pains. And I think what's really gone on this year is there's just been more talk, I think, about the officiating than there's ever been yeah, before. Yeah, for sure. And that makes it seem like it's been worse than it is. Cash? Yeah, I think, like, part of it, I think, is them trying to correct some things and trying to change the way they're calling certain things. But I think it's just led to maybe the most inconsistent year ever when it comes to officiating. And, right. And you got um, the official account, like, subtweeting the league. And yeah, stuff. like, just a really, weird, like, strange year for that. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just led to more confusion. Even, like, perfect example, though, the uh, Paul George, Rudy Gobert incident at the end of game six where like nine times out of ten, more actually, more than 90% of the time, that's been a foul. If that in happens the in the NBA, first quarter, that's a foul. That's a foul. Yeah. And then like at the end, they don't call it and then their explanation is, well, you know, because they cracked down on the whole like 
uh, jump shooters leaning into the defender. And it's like, okay, fair. You did say you were going to crack down on that. But how did you basically not crack down on it for the first six months? And then all of a sudden, like the most uh, monumental possession maybe of the season so far. And it's like, well, now we're going to crack down on that. That's not a foul. So like, I think that's what's so infuriating is how inconsistent it is. Like we've had instances, you know, with Giannis clearly stepping out on the baseline and and <laughs> yeah. then hitting a game winner at like, there's just been so many things this season where it doesn't add up. Yeah, and it's also a transition sort of type season for the officials because so many of those veteran officials um, have, you know, left, retired, you know, done other things. And it's just, it's tough, man. It's, you know, officiating games is about uh, managing relationships, right? And, like, a lot of these star players, they probably have, you know, established connections to, to guys that are now in that uh, New Jersey Secaucus um, <laughs> review room that no one ever wants to see on And they took Monty McCutcheon off the floor. Yeah, so, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of factors that go into it. I also think that, like, it's always just going to get look worse and worse because we, we now have so much more availability to, to video and um, there's constant discussion on social media and, like, it just feeds into the whole cycle. And I think the NBA has decided it's probably good for us to continuously be talked about. And so they leave it this thing open-ended, kind of like MVP discussions and not defining what an MVP actually is. Um, but, I mean, you know, officials do get caught in the crosshairs. But then again, there's also been so many terrible, terrible calls. Um, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to revisit LeBron. <music> Welcome back. Uh, as always, we're going to wrap up the podcast with our playoff flashback. And this one uh, seems top of mind because really LeBron finds himself in a very similar situation this season in 2018, the year where he's passing the Jose Calderon, uh, as he was in 2010, the last time LeBron lost to an Eastern Conference opponent in the playoffs. LeBron, that season, uh, you know, gets bounced in the second round, loses to Boston in six games. Um, Cleveland actually had a 2-1 series lead. Cleveland was one of the best teams in the league that season, if not the best team. But LeBron goes cold over the last three games, shoots 18 of 53 from the field in the next three, uh, and the Cavaliers lose the next three. LeBron leaves, and that was the end of LeBron in Cleveland until 2014 when he came back. So... Wolfon, I guess I'll start with you. What are your most vivid memories of LeBron's last Eastern Conference loss? Um, the most vivid one for me is just the game six. Like, he just looked so checked out and disengaged in that game. Um, you know, he walks off the floor, he takes off that Cavs jersey for what we thought was the last time. Didn't turn out to be the last time he came back, obviously. But um, at the time, I, I, I like... I don't know. I remember it, it seeming pretty inconceivable to me before that happened that he was going to leave that offseason. And as soon as he walked off the floor after that just like bizarre uh, three-game stretch, I I felt like it was over. And it changed so quickly. Like they, they won that game three by 30 points. They're up 2-1. And then suddenly everything just like got super, super weird. And LeBron averaged like 20, 21 points for the next three games, 6.3 turnovers a game, shot 34% from the field, 15% from three. Um, really just like one of the worst three-game stretches of his career. And like, I think that that's really where this like narrative about LeBron not being clutch started. Uh, it was pretty short-lived, I think, but between that and like the next year, what happened in the finals against Dallas, it was kind of similar how he sort of checked out. 
um, because up until that point, he'd been nothing but absolute nails in the playoffs. Yeah. And then, and then suddenly, like, it was just really jarring to see him check out like that, especially you're comparing it to this year's team, but, like, that team won 61 games. That team was, like, fourth in offense, seventh in defense, um, and had the second-best net rating in the league. Like, they, Wasn't that also the year they only lost, like, one game at home? That was the year before. That was the year before, okay. When, when yeah. they – and so, like, yeah, they lost to Orlando the year before, a team that was, like, you know, very well-equipped to beat them, they I think. went to the finals. Yeah. They kind and of went up on the Lakers if Courtney yep. Lee made a layup. For sure. Yeah. And then the next year, it's like Orlando was uh, probably the best team in the league that year, and mm-hmm. the Cavs were easily number two. And they were well on their way to – meeting again in the conference finals until something happened. You know, Calvin Murphy would tell you one thing. Um, you know, the rest of the world would tell you something else. But mm. um, something happened, and, and I don't know. It just wasn't, it wasn't the same. And then, you know, we know what happened after that. Yeah, I think definitely that's, like, the most vivid memory from that series. I think one thing people forget a lot when they think back and just kind of assume LeBron checked out is, do you remember LeBron was dealing with that elbow injury? Mm-hmm. like the back half of that year going into the playoffs and I remember even when they had taken the 2-1 series lead like there was still talk about his elbow and like how it was bothering and he you know it was kind of affecting his play and I'm not saying that's the sole reason why they went into the gutter obviously other things <clears throat> Delonte were at play as well but um no but seriously like you look at the roster he had to um like Will wrote it out for us, like Anthony Parker, Anton Jameson, who I think was their big like in-season acquisition that year. That was like supposed to push them over the top. Right. Mo Williams, Shaq, again, Delonte, uh, Anderson Verjao, JJ Hickson, Jamario Moon, Big Z. Like that was a terrible roster. How they even won 61 games is again, a testament to LeBron. Right. The fact that they were up 2-1 on that Celtics team is a testament to how well LeBron played. I do think that injury played a factor in it. Maybe some off the court things played a factor too. And I think, I just think he had three really bad games and was disgusted by it all in the end. But I still don't know if I buy into the whole like he had just checked out and given up narrative. It looked like it, but I, I still don't know if I believe LeBron actually did that. I don't think so, like in those first two games, but like that last game. Like I, I just remember this feeling in my stomach. The like, second this half, is, for sure. The, like, what is going on? He yeah, had you know? nine turnovers in that game. Yeah. yeah. The, the thing is, though, like in that game six, I mean, when you look back at it, he still had twenty-seven points, nineteen rebounds, ten assists, three steals, and a block. But he did have those nine turnovers, and yeah, I agree with you. It's weird. Like, this is the greatness of LeBron that even when he is passive and sulking, and you know, like not necessarily playing at his best. He can still roll out of bed and come out with the stat line that everyone else would be so proud of. It'd be like of, a career night for another guy. Exactly. So, um, yeah, I mean, especially when you look at the roster, like, LeBron, in this, when you look back at the series, like, you know, the, the Celtics had just so many pieces, right? You had the big three. You had Rondo. And then you're bringing Rasheed Wallace off the bench. And Big Baby Davis, who was actually a solid player at that time. You're bringing, you know, Ray, or not Ray, or Rondo, but um, Tony Allen off the bench as well. Like, there were just so many pieces, and it felt like LeBron, as a one-man army, was going up against an actual team that was cohesive, and they ended up losing six games. And that sounds a lot like what's happening to LeBron right now. I don't know if the Raptors have the same top-end talent as, as Boston did at that time. Probably not, especially when we look at the sort of totality of the, the body of work of these players. But, no, LeBron's in trouble again. And, you know, if if it's not this round, maybe the next round against Philadelphia, like... LeBron's going to have a really, really tough road ahead of him. And, um, you know, we might actually see some change in the Eastern Conference. But 
Also, we might not because he's LeBron James. Yeah. And I mean, also he's an unrestricted free agent at, at, at lot this season's end as well. So. Yep. Yeah. yeah. There you go. LeBron might be losing in game six and taking off his jersey again. And who knows if he comes back. It'd be weird if he came back one more time. But uh, chances are pretty good that he's leaving. So, again, thanks everyone for listening. Um, thank you to uh, both Cash and Wolfon for doing the podcast. And as always, uh, support the show. Uh, by rating and reviewing, uh, and we'll be back next Monday.